relative. Yeah, they're just like regular, like right wing yeah. people. They're both oh. just right wingers now. So, you know. so before we venture into the snake pit, yeah. I, I wanted to maybe. Into the snake I've got like a suggestion for an icebreaker. I got a Truth Social account uh, this week. Oh, nice. I'm at Don DeLillo on there. <laughs> to me. I think I might just at some point tweet out like quotes from White Noise or something <laughs> at, with like a bunch of MAGA hashtags and see if I can get some followers that way. That's well, awesome. Um, yeah, but yeah, follow me on Truth Social at Don DeLillo. <laughs> and uh, actually on Truth Social, I've discovered a pretty grave uh, investigation into injustice being undertaken by ex-president oh, Donald Trump. Oh, I saw you posting about this. Please. please. So um, we all know that the FBI took this unprecedented act of raiding a private citizen's home. Yeah, one of the um, tentacles of the deep state, the FBI. And you might have thought, well, that's old news. It's a while ago. The special master, Judge Deary, all that. But Donald Trump is still, you know, on the ground investigating. And he, he, he truthed two days ago. <laughs> is that what they call a post? I think so. They call it truth. Instead of tweeting, yeah. it's truthing. Here's a truth from Donald J. Trump. <laughs> I'll soon be heading to the scene of the unwarranted, unjust, and illegal raid and break-in of my home in Florida. I'll be able to see for myself the results of the unnecessary ransacking of rooms and other areas of the house. It has already been proven that so much has been wrongfully taken. A grave invasion of privacy. I will keep the American public informed on truth. Okay, that's pretty exciting, right? He's like, hasn't even gone to Mar-a-Lago yet to see what they did. Like how, that's how you know you're rich when you're talking about one of your homes and you're like, I'm right. going for the first time to the scene <laughs> of the crime. And so then a day later, uh, he says, arrived in Florida last night and had a long and detailed chance to check out the scene of yet another government crime, the FBI's raid and break-in of my home. I guess they don't think there is a Fourth Amendment anymore, and to them there isn't. In any event, after what they've done, the place will never be the same. <laughs> and they didn't even take off their shoes in my bedroom. Nice. Wait, is that real? Nice, with three exclamation points. Yeah. Yes, that's a real truth. With, with, with the, sh the shoes and everything? Yeah. Wow. FBI agents left an upper deck gold-plated <laughs> toilet, and it'll never be the same. But uh, actually, there's a lot of Trump's truth that do take on real material issues sure. uh, of the day. And this is why he's he has such vast support amongst the working class. Like, for example, <laughs> right after he tweeted that, he posted this article uh, from the AP News that the fan of the opera is going to close in Broadway, <laughs> on Broadway from next year. Um, and he says, even Phantom of the Opera is closing in the Biden era. Look, listen, wow. if you think about the hot button issues that really animate the working class these days, number one's probably inflation. You know, number two is probably like this crazy churn in the labor market. But three has to at least be Phantom of the Opera or maybe Cats. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Punch when back of Cats back, you know, I mean, I think he identifies with the Phantom of the Opera. There's a phantom oh, yeah. haunting politics. Yeah, the Phantom right. of Donald Trump. He's that specter, man. Hiding he up in the wings on true social. He really is a specter, though. He haunts like every single aspect of American politics. Just imagine him playing an organ moodily. <laughs> I don't think that man has a has a musical note in his body, man. But if he did, he would play an organ, a grandiose organ in a in an old Broadway theater for sure. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, great comedian for sure. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, his delivery. We're here with Ross Wolf. Ross Wolf. Famous ultra left communist. Is he? Are you ultra or just left? Uh, I think of myself as sympathetic to the tradition of left communism. You guys did an episode on that, which was great. In fact, I, I spoke with a couple guys from the ICT out in Los Angeles last time I was there, and they said that they listened to your episode, kind of, you know, expecting it to be, you know, shoddy or like just a kind of, you know, sort of popular presentation with, you know. With all filled with misconceptions, yeah. but they were incredibly impressed. You're talking oh, about really? the Bukharin episode? Um, no, it was, uh, it was the older a, one. a couple of years okay. ago, I think. A couple of years ago, exactly. Uh, yeah, so we should put a, a link to that episode in the show notes and also your episode with Andrews Lee about Bukharin. Oh, yeah. At one point, Andrews is like, What is left communism? <laughs> and you just knocked it out of the park. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so yeah. I'll. I'll try to remember to put both of those in the show notes. That was all off the top of my head, man. Um, I guess I've been kind of like stewing in these juices for yeah, 15, man. 20 years at this point. 
but I guess today we're going to move on from, uh, uh, you know, merely interpreting left communism <laughs> to understanding how it can change the world. Are how, we not? How it, how it operates in practice, which is at events with about 20 or so people at them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I, this whole, ep- this whole episode came together because Andy and I were planning on having John Garvey who was at the presentation that we'll be talking about on the podcast. But Andy came down with a disease we all thought was gone for the last two and a half years or so called influenza. It was kind of Spanish flu of 1918, the original left communist disease. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we had to, uh, John Garvey as an older gentleman did not need to be, um, susceptible to the flu. So we had no episode, and Ross and I, you and I, went to the beach on Sunday, had a really nice, probably the last beach day of the season. So when we needed a pinch hitter, I said to myself, Ross will come back for number three, maybe? Yeah, third. I was on, I think, like your fourth or fifth, maybe a sixth episode. Uh, I don't know. It was an early one. And then, like a couple years later, I talked about uh, the piece that I wrote for Brooklyn Rail about nationalism and borders. Oh, right, yeah. And, yeah. It's good to be back. Yeah, you're like an official pinch hitter now. We hit you up the day before, and you just kind of come right in, and you come right on down. Yeah. It's good stuff. Always happy to. So, Ross, you were good enough to come in today uh, and talk about an event, actually, from uh, not last weekend, but the weekend before that you were part of putting together, right? And Andy Mm -hmm. actually was able to make it, too. Tell us a bit about the event. It was about Ukraine, right? Yeah, so... um Last summer, I was contacted by Sander from Internationalist Perspective about editing a forthcoming volume of one of their late theoreticians' posthumous works, a guy who went by the name Macintosh, a great theorist, um, had been with the organization since its foundation, was kind of its leading theoretician. And IP being a split from the left com group, International Communist Current, is that right? That's correct. So they were, he was part of the International Communist Current's foundation in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and then it, over the course of the 80s, he began reading German Vert Critique and uh, Moish Pastone and others. And uh, they split away from the ICC to form internationalist perspective. Uh, the main difference, I think, is that they rejected the what they saw as the sort of residual Leninism of the ICC and uh, the emphasis on the proletarian dictatorship. Mm. Uh, something that I probably am still more sympathetic to than they are. Um, but in any case, um, they wanted me to help edit a couple of panels that Macintosh appeared on uh, for Platypus. Well, uh, what kind of dictatorship do they want to have, if not a proletarian one? I don't think they want any kind of dictatorship at all. What? Wow, you cannot have a dictatorship. And it's just pure anarchy. I feel like there has to be some sort of transitional power, uh-huh. you know, bef- until society rids itself of classes. But you can at least define proletarian dictatorship in some anarchist way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. really, state Which and revolution. Which is silly to do, but. Yeah, I mean, state and revolution is as close to anarchism as Lenin ever got. Yeah. And I think that proletarian dictatorship is the self-destruction of the state in the transition to a classless society but but then the question is of what then what happens to the economy or within the economy right mm-hmm. so you know we've seen attempts at establishing a dictatorship and an attempt abortive but a real one of trying to sort of implode the bourgeois state and create proletarian organs or uh, organs of governance or whatever you know the the big question is what happens to the economy at that point in time yeah um it's a huge question the you know the failure of the revolution has spread beyond the borders of what had been the russian empire you know really meant that there there was an industrial base that was lacking that had been taken for granted by marx and the marxists of the second international including those who went on to form the third international so it's a big unanswered question uh, as to you know whether it would have worked out or not. But in any case, internationalist perspective um, is of the view that, at least at this point in history, perhaps um, in light of the failures of these previous revolutions, um, the idea of workers' power in the form of a dictatorship of the proletariat can no longer be maintained. Mm. Um, again, I, I, may, I may be more traditional in that respect. But um, in any case... 
I asked, you know, when I met met up with Sander, um, you know, what he'd been up to, and he was talking about his uh, perspective on the war in Ukraine. Right. And he talked about wanting to do some sort of event that brought together um, people who com- coming from a similar theoretical background, from similar premises, uh, just to have a public discussion on the war in Ukraine. Obviously, we're at a sort of low ebb in terms of... Uh, an international militant working class mm. opposed to capitalism. And so any of the sort of principles that would be expounded at such a discussion, um, really, you know, in order to have any promise, they would have to be taken up by some sort of mass movement. But yeah. still it's good to have these kinds of, uh, you know, you know, clarifying sort of discussion. Yeah. These yeah. discussions to sort of, I don't no, if you'd think of them maybe as just like a throat clearing exercise, but at least something like some sort of, you know, public open forum on on, you know, issues of the day. Yeah. Especially ones that raise important theoretical issues like the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah, and we had done Ukraine events at Woodbine before, but it was more like fundraisers, you know, people from the Ukrainian diaspora talking about what was what they were thinking about, what's going on in their family, sharing Ukrainian food and that kind of thing. And it was nice to have a discussion that was a little bit more politically oriented, like trying to think about what's happening in the situation politically without being totally abstracted from the reality of the war. So we still had uh, Andrew, who experienced the first days of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, who is and, Andrew? Uh, well, we just know him as Andrew, but he was problemicist on problemicist on Twitter, and okay. until he, he got kicked off of that, he's yeah. solutionist. No, oh, no, he's oh, solutionist. Okay, yeah. and he's written some articles for Endnotes, and he has uh, a write-up of his talk in uh, Left East is the name of the mm-hmm. publication. We'll put that in the show notes, and um, so he gave his analysis. You know, he he was. He's kind of interested in the, the communization current and the mm-hmm. ultra left. So he gave his analysis on like what he's experienced in Ukraine through that lens. And we had a woman named Lilia, who's uh, uh, an American from the Ukraine diaspora. So it was we were still talking, you know, about the realities of the war, but also from a more political perspective, which gave it um, a you know a more dynamic uh, talk than just a more like humanitarian mm-hmm. uh, focused event. Yeah, um, and that it troubled some people. Like we got a couple comments. Uh, like worried that this was going to be in some way um, sympathetic to Putin or something, which it wasn't at all. No. But I think that's what a lot of people worry about when you start talking about the war politically is that someone's going to justify the war in some way mm. or like, you yeah. know, glorify Putin or say, you know, Ukraine deserves it or something. Um, so fortunately that this event was not that, and we could have an event where we don't fall into, fall into that kind of insipidity. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, and, and certainly there is plenty of that online from various tankies as well as, you know, certain Trotskyists as well. Certain uh, people on the right as well, some of the new right people. Yeah, who share, I mean, and have made common cause with some of these, you know, you know, I, what I would consider right-wing Stalinists, um, you know, in backing Putin or seeing him as a counterweight to uh, American hegemony or uh, hashtag MAGA communism people. Exactly. So yeah. Haas or infra Haas or whatever yeah. his name is. Jackson Hickel. I had a pretty uh, dark thought that if this February there were like bread riots in Russia mm-hmm. and there was a, a working class overthrow <laughs> of, of Putin and masses of Russian soldiers mutinied and like fled <laughs> from the front lines. Those people would be against that. They, they would, would see call that, it a color revolution, right? They would yeah. say it's. They would say <laughs> if like literally the same thing that happened in 1917 yeah. happened today, they would call it a color revolution. Yeah, they'd be Kerensky. They'd want the provisional government mm-hmm. to redeclare war on the West, right? Because this is one of the dangers that you you mentioned in politicizing, broadly speaking, uh, the Russo-Ukrainian war, uh, which is that people get into this mode of all of a sudden we're looking at little chess pieces on the board. You know, we're we're thinking about term in terms of like um, U.S. hegemony versus multipolarity, or we're looking at it in terms of like this camp versus that camp. You know, in this very sort of dry like. 20, late 20th century sort of campus mode where geopolitics becomes like the whole and everything. And actually for many of these people too, 
geopolitics is the way that they understand you know socialism or communism happening it's through like bolsonaro and chi coming together and forming like a united front against american imperialism it's uh i just heard a rumor that ussr2 is about to be declared <laughs> yeah it's that kind of thinking yeah it is so we really wanted to create sort of an alternative to these kinds of you know campus discussions you know where you know really all that is considered is taking sides in a particular geopolitical struggle, whether it's, you know, we support the Ukrainian state or we support Putin uh, against the United States, NATO, and, you know, his, you know, you know Zelensky is the stooge of NATO. Um, so what we, we tried to break it up into four different sort of subcategories, four different themes that we, you know, created questions around. And we're doing this concurrently with a new issue of Insurgent Notes. It's been a while since Insurgent Notes uh, published an issue. The last one was on uh, the the book by Angry Workers of the World, mm. who've had a few uh, internal debates of their own on uh, the issue of Ukraine. Uh, but the themes that we looked at were, first of all, national self-determination, which uh, left communists um, historically have been skeptical of. Um, Bordigas aside, um, who still, you know, have some sympathy for that in, in colonial contexts. Um, the interesting thing there is that, of course, uh, the invasion uh, of Ukraine by Russia is seen as a violation of the national sovereignty of Ukraine, uh, and thus Ukraine's national self-determination depends on kicking them out, while supporters of uh, Russia will say that, no, the national self-determination of places like Crimea and the Donbass mm-hmm. and Luhansk is being violated by the Ukrainian state because of you know, these majority ethnic Russian and uh, cultural Russian enclaves that exist there who are being oppressed. And so it's a kind of a live issue there. So national self-determination was one of the big issues that we were uh, gathering to discuss. The other one is the question of imperialism and anti-imperialism, whether imperialism uh, is synonymous with just the U.S. and NATO or whether other competing imperialisms exist. Is Russia a regional imperialist actor um, or is it, you know, an anti-imperialist force simply by virtue of opposing the geopolitical interests of the United States? So, uh, imperialism, anti-imperialism was our second theme. Third was the big debate between, uh, defeatism, revolutionary defeatism and defensism. This is a big slogan in World War One, which was that, uh, in order for a revolution to succeed internationally, we have to support the defeat of our own, in quotation marks, uh, bourgeois governments and lead uh, working class movement to take out over state power in the event of its collapse. Uh, and then fourth, it was a question of geopolitics and like phases of capitalism. Like, are we in a new phase of capitalism as capitalism entered into sort of some sort of terminal crisis? What is the relationship of the war to the crisis? Like, you know, inflation was already on the rise before the invasion. Um, is it a cause of crisis or is it an effect of crisis? Mm. And so we invited um, Sander from Internationalist Perspective, uh, John Garvey of Insurgent Notes and Hard Crackers, um, Andrew, who'd written uh, the letters from Ukraine for EndNotes, and Lilia, who's from the Ukrainian diaspora, who you mentioned. She's a legal worker in North Carolina, does a lot of stuff um, organizing uh, bail um, uh, payouts uh, for people arrested, um, in protesting against uh, Confederate statues and stuff like that. So it was an interesting uh, array of personalities and different perspectives. Yeah, I thought the the main theme that everyone seemed to more or less agree on is that the, the real danger in the rhetoric around the war as far as what, you know, uh, we can tell is going on in Ukraine, but also the way support for Ukraine is manifesting itself is in support of this uh, hyper-nationalism or this vision that uh, the solution to this problem is the establishment of a Ukrainian state that has, you know, total control of its borders and its economy and is a liberal democracy and all this. And, um, and that, you know, historical and it's just justifying this, this vision of Ukraine as historically being under the yoke of the Russian pressure, a professor. And now this is a chance for Ukraine to finally assert itself 
through the nation state, through the liberal democratic nation state. And the, the sort of problem proposed by everybody is like, how do we approach this in a, in a, 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 in a sense where we understand that nationalism is actually at the root of this war. And mm-hmm. we're, we have to sort of understand that the problem here actually is nationalism. The solution isn't a different nationalism. Yeah. And certainly I think that both um, Sander and, uh, Andrew took that up a lot. I think S- Sander approached it from more of an historical perspective, uh, trying to situate um, the present uh, crisis in terms of uh, global dynamics of capitalism and um, making the case for revolutionary defeatism um, in the classical sense, opposing any sort of nationalism, even the nationalism of the underdog or of the oppressed or of the less powerful country in this case. Uh, though Ukraine has been very impressive militarily, you know, with or without, you know, uh, military hardware from the West, um, they've certainly uh, beaten the Russian army back. And in fact, it was kind of interesting that almost simultaneously with this discussion, there was this very impressive uh, counteroffensive launched in the north um, on the grounds that Russians had taken in the previous months. Uh, the Ukrainian military had uh, launched this sort of feint to the south bombarding Kherson while deploying uh, troops to the north and in the Russian army up there disintegrated in, in the last week or so. There's been a lot of criticism of Putin from his own ranks, mm-hmm. both from uh, liberals and anti-war uh, activists, as well as hardliners who think that he's just not prosecuting the war um, with enough vigor. Um, so it, it's interesting that this was taking place, uh, you know, at the same time. And it was interesting to hear the disagreements. Uh, really, the the biggest one um, probably was between Sander and John Garvey. Um, John uh, was making the case uh, through a reading of um, of uh, an early uh, Rosa Luxemburg article uh, preface that she wrote to a collection of articles on Polish nationalism, I think, in 1904 or 1905, and then a Hal Draper piece talking about the so-called myth of Lenin's revolutionary defeatism, arguing that Lenin only took up this slogan opportunistically or used it as a cudgel in 1916 against his opponents. Um, Sander really maintained the line, and I, I probably agree the most with Sander myself, but John was representing his own views. He wasn't representing those of insurgent notes or anything like that. I think it's important, too, um, to use events like this, to use even a special issue on the war uh, for insurgent notes to sort of hash out these differences, especially among people who, uh, at least on the surface of things, share similar ideals or principles or uh, premises. Um, how how can they arrive at different conclusions? How can we work out these differences in a way that's not acrimonious, in a way that's um, uh, constructive? Yeah, this makes me regret having not made it, but... Uh so, so what were some of the highlights of it? You said that Andrew had some interesting things to say. Yeah, so what was interesting was, of course, there was this sort of historical um, dispute between Sander and John um, that I think was you know, quite interesting, especially as someone who you know, holds these past art theoretical debates within Marxism to be uh, very, of great historical import. Um, Andrew offered a perspective, obviously, um, as someone who was able to just recently in the last month or two escape from uh, Ukraine. Um, he's in Great Britain now, I believe. Was um, he, he escaped in conscription? Did he have to like flee the country? Um, I'm not exactly sure the conditions of it, but in any case, he made it to Great Britain and um, he's more free to speak about uh, the war, I think, to speak his mind about it. And what was interesting about his talk, which I couldn't hear as well at the, uh, event itself we were kind of positioned behind the speakers um and he he spoke a bit quietly at times but it's his uh prepared remarks were published recently on left east as andy mentioned and what's interesting about his uh, perspective is that he's very attentive to on uh, the novelty of the situation mm-hmm. and you can hear really uh the influence of the communization current in his uh in in the way that he positions himself but he he doesn't want to be bogged down by these historical debates, um, and he does. But he does view, and I think this is quite correct, 
the the current struggle is being uh, sort of waged uh, on the terrain of you know these old you know of failed revolution, both mm. fi- literally and figuratively. So figuratively in terms of you know these debates over nationalism, uh, defensism versus defeatism, imperialism, and so on, and the character of capitalism, as well as on the the historic grounds on which you know the great revolution of the last century, you know, was waged, mm-hmm. you know, Russia and Ukraine were, you know, the epicenter of the world revolution, uh, over a hundred years ago. So it's interesting to see like the way that, you know, P- Marxists try to make sense of, you know, new events, um, using this old language and, you know, in relation to the, this place that had been shaped substantially by, a failed revolutionary state, right? Former USSR. So much of um, you know the conflict there, of course, is the legacy of the Soviet Union itself, and so much of the problems in you know geopolitical and otherwise economic and political problems um, in that part of the world, of course, are revolve around the collapse of the Soviet Union and the way in which you know all these states were sort of federated under you know, the the umbrella of that. Just something like, you mentioned hyper-nationalism earlier, things happening right now like um, Russian speakers being expelled from places like Estonia, um, the attempt at changing place names or uh, demoting the Russian language. You know, these are like, obviously for the people who are living through this particular disaster, you know, there's a real cult- cultural touchstone there. But as somebody who... You know, I think all of us are rightfully very um, wary of nationalism. The whole sort of way in which this has become this sort of like historical paroxysm, this this like massive churning now of all of these underlying sentiments and underlying conflicts from the last 30 years just goes to show how little actually this part of the world has moved on from that Soviet period. Or that is to say, like how much of the last 30 years has been a kind of slow sort of conflictual stasis that's now exploding, not just in Ukraine, but also in the Baltics, of course, and places like Central Europe, where obviously the Soviet Union had also, you know. Yeah, I mean, the collapse of communism, you know, not only the USSR, but also former Yugoslavia, um, led to a real recrudescence of these forces that many thought had been sort of consigned to the last century, these forces of nationalism um, that often took on very bloody proportions. I mean, there are instances, of course, that were relatively bloodless. Um, The partition of uh, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, of course, comes to mind. But, I mean, obviously the Civil War of the uh, 1990s uh, in the Balkans was incredibly bloody. And um, what's going on today in Ukraine, um, you know, if it continues uh, for years, you know, who knows, um, could be similar. And if it escalates further in terms of uh, sort of uh, nuclear brinksmanship. You know, who knows you know, what the body count on that might be. This is the frightening thing when, again, people try to turn this into like a chess match or try to take, you know, one side wholeheartedly as like the moral good or uh, try to use nationalism in order to, you know, increase Americans, say, armed support for one of these actors over there is that it's kind of like cheering um, Serbia um, you know, uh, Serbia in 1914 against the Austro-Hungarian Empire and calling for Serbia to have a bunch of arms. Like, well, what happened, you know, a couple months after that? There's a way in which, you know, we're watching in real, ter- in real time and in a kind of a slow motion way an escalation and ratcheting up um, of the tensions. And, of course, this brinksmanship between NATO and Russia. And it feels to me like watching the world sleepwalk into the first world war. And, you know, this isn't, you know, pacifism is a, is a good core liberal value. And um, pacifism has really been left aside for much of the Western world mm-hmm. among people who, you know, maybe even um, marched against the Iraq war or were calling for the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Yeah. All of a sudden now under these particular conditions for reasons that we can understand, right, this defensive war, the fact that it's taking place on Ukrainian territory with Ukrainian civilian casualties and um, you know refugees being really, really high. Nevertheless, it feels like a very dangerous time right now because the people who are pushing uh, so hard on this national line are pulling on a lot of really dangerous threads, I feel like. 
Yeah, and it's interesting too. You bring up you know the example of Serbia a hundred years ago because one of the articles that we read, we we did these background readings, um, the four of us, uh, the four participants, and then me as the moderator of the event. Uh, different articles that have been published on the war. Uh, there was a great piece uh, published by a Bul- Bulgarian group called Conflict um, that mentioned the example of Serbia in World War One, uh, where they brought up the fact that the uh, Serbian Social Democratic Party was among the only ones in Europe that actually voted against uh, backing its own national defense. Is that right? Yeah, and it's interesting too because out of all of the countries, I mean, tiny little Serbia being declared war upon by the massive Austro-Hungarian Empire and then Germany and whatnot, for them to reject calls for a sort of national defense um, on the grounds of sort of class internationalism was, you know, a, a really heroic gesture that um, the author of the the conflict piece that we read uh, upheld as a kind of shining example of, you know, what a Marxist, you know, class orientation really could achieve. Uh, whether or not we're in a position where we can really have these kinds of heroic stances anymore, especially lacking a sort of broad-based international working class movement to take up these principles and, you know, make good on the promises that they hold. Uh, That's an open question. And whether a revolutionary defeatism has any meaning at all when revolution isn't a realistic prospect, that's, um, that's another question. But, you know, it's interesting. It was interesting to see the way that the other discussants uh, at the event sort of tried to take up this question of revolution in new ways. That's really what Andrew, I think, uh, tries to get at in his piece that he, he published. Well, I think, although we don't have the mass movement uh, that the Second International had, because it represented millions of workers who could have changed the course of history by refusing to fight the war, or refusing to reproduce the war, uh, we don't have that ability now. There's no international coordination like that. That doesn't mean that revolution is not possible today. In fact, we've seen massive uprisings all around the world uh, just this year. And in previous years, a lot of it has been in uh, the sort of Russian sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit longer ago is throughout Europe. Uh, this conflict, in a way, is the result of Maidan, which was like something like a revolution mm-hmm. or an insurrection in, in Ukraine that took on extremely nationalist characteristics. Um, So it's not like we don't live in revolutionary times, um, and it's not like there aren't revolutionary approaches to the war, and I think this is something I really liked about Andrew's piece in Left East. Um, You know, he's talking about, like, what led to to nationalism being the default way of approaching Mm -hmm. this catastrophe of Russia invading, and... He uh, at the end, he says, like, well, there's another way of looking at the way people are responding to the war, which is that there are people who are deserting from the army who are refusing to fight. There are people who are, uh, you know, uh, are looting and coordinating to loot in towns that are under siege or being bombed um, to help out one another. There are people who are helping refugees around Europe and in Ukraine. So it's not like the only solution is to wear wear the Ukraine flag and take up arms and right. fight uh, or to, you know, support NATO or, or uh, sanctions or whatever. There's always going to be these sort of quiet underground or, um, you know, largely illegal to express manifestations of mm-hmm. popular discontents of the war. And I think one way we're going to see it around the world is movements against inflation. Um, like there's going to be an economic catastrophe in Europe and people are not going to like translate that into a rejection of the war. They're just going to say like, I don't, I can't afford to heat my house anymore. I lost my job because the factory closed down. You're already Um, seeing that. I can't fill my car, that sort of thing, you know, bread and butter issues, so to speak. But they, there's an understanding that they come from the war and that's already led to an uprising and, Ecuador and Sri Lanka in the last year, and we're yeah. going to see a lot more of that. Well, you know that it does. This gets back to the chicken or egg argument that you were talking about before. Like um, a lot of people see this inflation and this squeezing, you know, the cost of living rising and the sort of the, the furloughs and factory shutdowns, which are already happening in Europe, and uh, they look at the war and obviously the sanctions and the blowback from those sanctions, um, and that is like a good lens for people to start 
moving towards an anti-war sort of perspective, maybe an anti-NATO perspective, perspective within Europe, which would be good. But two things. The first is that it's been the right. It's been like the Swedish Democrats, and it's been the alternative for Deutschland, and it's yeah. been the Le Pens of the world, um, and Orban, who, well, Orban less, you know, Orban being a moderate within the right within his country. But you know what I mean? They're angling themselves as yeah. the sort of counter-systemic, counter-hegemonic uh, political party within this. And also the other thing, too, is that, like, it's it's necessary for us and people who think like us um, and people who have the same political principles to stretch that one step further and say, it's not simply the Ukraine Russian war, which is uh, causing this misery in your lives. In fact, that war itself and all wars and all of the miseries are ultimately epiphenomenal of like the central misery of our lives, which is, you know, the class system and, and wage labor and the jump from one to the other, I think is a very, very difficult one. But if we're looking to insert ourselves in politically, it's as was done in this presentation that, that you guys had at Woodbine to try to connect these issues together and show people that unlike what you hear 24 seven, this isn't simply madman Putin trying to like recreate the russian empire or try to become catherine the great part two or something like that it's not simply like a psychological or personalizable um historical dynamic at play here you have decades and centuries of sort of uh, historical development and historical conflict which leads to this particular point and of course the inflation as andy mentioned had begun before the war right it's like the same argument as as saying as people trying to separate like covid from capitalism right you read mike davis and you see with like peri-urban areas and the fact that more and more interactions between new diseases and human beings are part of this sort of chaotic growth in uh, peri-urban areas in the developing world and then you could see that capitalism and pandemic are actually very very much intertwined and it's it's part of the same issue yeah, and I mean, of course, there are these crazy ideologies that attach themselves to you know the Russian war effort, the Ukrainian war effort, the various liberal imperialist um, justifications of the war effort, supporting the war effort, and the need to sort of sacrifice these sort of austerity measures and accept the sanctions and whatever blowback will you know will come as a result of that. Um, certainly, you know, there are crazy you know, Eurasianist ideologies and crazy like neo-Tsarist or neo-Soviet, neo-Stalinist ideologies that, you know, back Putin as the leader, though, I mean, that's fracturing a bit in the last week. Mm. Um, yeah, everybody's everybody's a fan when the the Russian army's marching forwards, right? When they start marching backwards, yeah. all of a sudden there's questions. Yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, there are these, like, broader rationales, Putin, like, and even, like, it's in- interesting, like, Grigory Udin, who's, like, one of the great anti-war activists in in Russia, who's been jailed and, you know, beaten physically for, you know, protesting against the war, he published a piece in Der Spiegel that um, talked about how Putin is not just a madman, it's not, you know, just that Russians, like, sort of irrationally, crazily uh, support this war, there are these broader dynamics at work. The West is not blameless. Uh, and that's not, of course, a justification of the invasion. Obviously, he you know, has put his himself on the line, his family on the line, uh, opposing it. But um, there are these broader forces at work. And, I mean, I think, too, what you, what you mentioned, like, of course, I think it's, it's quite noble to, and we should, we should really, you know, uphold the example of, uh, people who burn down conscription stations and sabotage arms shipments within Russia, who, you know, people have been doing that in Belarus and in Russia proper, and, you know, any efforts to undermine the Russian war effort. Of course, I don't begrudge people who whose homes are under attack in Ukraine from defending themselves against the Russian army or anything like that. Obviously, it's just a question of survival. There's really very little polit- political ideology involved in the sort of immediate self-defense um, but, you know, I think, too, like, you know, we should be some very sympathetic of people who just want to get out and get the hell out of there. I mean, mm. something like five million people have left Ukraine, people who don't want to stay and fight. I mean, I think that's every bit as valid for those people who, you know, feel like they need to um, 
fight and fight off, you know, the the person who's coming to kill their family or whatever. It's just as valid to try and get out of that situation that it is to stay and fight or anything like that. Especially, and I'm not even talking about like, you know, accepting that like Zelensky's some heroic figure or uh, that the Ukrainian state is, you know, a sovereign power or whatever or Antifa. Uh, yeah, or yeah, anti-fascist. I mean, it was an interesting t- exchange too because um, in the talk, John mentioned the various anarchists who have tried to unite under a sort of quasi-patriotic uh, front against the Russian invader, um, and have published these various articles on Libcom. In translation, um, a question was asked uh, about the efficacy of these anarchist efforts, what the numbers are, and Andrew was, I think quite soberly dismissive of it saying that you know the numbers are quite small to begin with and the the anarchists who have gone into on into battle on the front lines trying to sort of you know be more patriotic than the sort of azov battalion Hmm. uh types you know have you know those who didn't die at the front have come back having shed their former ideals having sort of you know I, i think uh i remember this a little bit differently um so i think john's point was that Anarchists in Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia have all uh, either coordinated or separately taken up the same position to mm. oppose Russia, um, not necessarily for the sake of patriotism for Ukraine, but because they see Putin as being this sort of uniquely uh, authoritarian force. Um, sure. And so he was specifically impressed by the sabotage uh, in Belarus and Russia by Belarusian and Russian anarchists. And then I think Andrew was talking about the longstanding, uh, the, the, the history of anarchists in Ukraine um, attempting to mobilize and finding themselves uh, um, amongst Azov-type people, more patriotic okay. militias, uh, which is something you could read about in like Crime Thinks History of, of Maidan and and how that's occurred. And so um, I don't think Andrew was saying that the anarchists who are mobilizing now have become Azov. Oh, uh, I don't, yeah, I'm I might, not saying that either. I just don't, I don't think, well, I, I, you might've heard them better in the audience than I, we did behind the speakers. Yeah, this is my, my that's my memory of it. But Garvey, uh, John Garvey was not saying that he, th- he's like particularly impressed by the Ukrainian anarchists in isolation. Oh yeah, he saw. Yeah, I mean, he saw it as kind of a broader effort, and you're right. And I mean, doesn't all this point to like the vastly historical different circumstances that we're in now than say we were in like 1917 or 1936? You know, there is no like proletarian mantle to don. There's no like international brigades that you can go and fight for communism or fight for anarchism. People feel compelled to make certain political choices and some people in particular positions are able to go and fight or they're able to go do mutual aid. But it's always in a sense like a compromise because you're fighting for in whether it's Russia or Ukraine for a bourgeois nation state, right? That yeah. doesn't even have the, the 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 sort of sense that it's it's meant to overcome that. Yeah, and I mean, which is the weird thing about bringing back all these debates from the 19th and 20th century, right? It does feel like it's kind of trying to resurrect a bunch of ghosts. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, maybe my impulse there is that I feel like these ghosts are still very much with us, and even you know, spectrally, like they, they, they haunt us. You know, our our own politics are you know formed in their shadow, Um, but. In in a more immediate sense, I think that many of the same sort of um, controversies and confusion uh, attend the current debate as did the Syrian civil war, you know, five ten years ago. I think a lot only with the with the main difference being that there's no no analog in Ukraine to Rojava. Mm-hmm. There's not there's no like quasi anarchist uh, formation. Um, that one can point to as a, as resisting, you know, ISIS on the one hand and Assad on the other hand, um, that many anarchists felt like that they could, form, you know, join in a sort of international brigade uh, and people did go over and fight. I mean, people are going over to fight yeah. in Ukraine as well, um, but there's no, there's none of that like uh, book tonight. 
Yeah. Uh, sort of. Or Osa, an Osalon. Osalon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There is no Osalon there. The, I mean, the, the day is young. I mean, the, the amount of the maelstrom of chaos that's being unleashed in that region with the amount of arms heading over there and like the mass mobilization of different sectors of um, Eastern European society um, means that I'm not saying that there's going to be like a, um, a Magnavite army that arises in <laughs> Ukraine, but it's only to say that regardless of what happens in this war, and I've heard predictions, you know, so many different ways, and I've learned now six months in that we can't really seem to predict much of anything. First, it was Russia was going to win immediately, and then it was Ukraine was going to beat them back to Crimea, and then it was that Russia was going to grind them down in an attrition war, and then Donbass, and then all of a sudden there's this, you know, counter, this uh, counteroffensive that, that is successful. But one thing that we do know is that this region of the world is irrevocably changed uh, and that the sort of like this hyper, these hyper nationalist social forces, these sort of um, centrifugal, but also centripetal forces uh, within the state, within the nation, within nationalism, even within NATO, right, are going to unleash all sorts of havoc in that part of the world right on the border of NATO, right yeah. next to you know the nuclear armed power of russia and yeah. so, so this is something that we need to keep our eyes on because there's going to be maybe there's going to be a lot of bad things but there could also potentially be possibilities that open up of some sort yeah. of autonomy some sort of uh, different struggle and outside of ukraine as well i think the cascading effects that andy alluded to i mean it will be stuff around energy prices more inflation you know which I think the war has compounded, uh, even if it was a pre-existing problem. Um, And I think that, you know, it is going to be interesting, especially as figures like Biden and so on say that, you know, and various liberal heads of state in the West say that we have to sort of buckle up and accept this because otherwise we're giving aid and comfort to Putin Mm. by demanding that, you know, he turn back on the gas or whatever. So, you know, there are all sorts of possibilities and possibilities that are hard to predict that could emerge from this situation. Yeah. And one thing that we know too, of course, is that this either comes out of, or is the cause of, or is just completely interrelated to the larger capitalist crisis that was already evident before COVID COVID kind of gave it, you know, a sort of breathing period for all the contradictions to build up. Mm -hmm. And then now we're two and a half years after COVID and the economy is complete haywire. There's a sovereign debt crisis on top of this inflation. There's food scarcity. It's gotten a little bit better since the ports of uh, Port of Odessa was opened up mm-hmm. for grain, but it's still racking large parts of the world. And so, like, focusing on the war is important in very immediate terms, right? But also we need to kind of telescope back and think about it in terms of this larger maelstrom, which is the global capitalist economy. Yeah, and sort of maybe to close out on this issue, I mean, this is kind of what we're looking to explore in this special issue of Insurgent Notes. So I've solicited uh, contributions. Uh, we'll see if people have the time um, and headspace to, to write pieces in response to the, the prompt, which uh, maybe we could attach to the show notes. Um, but, you know, I've asked people like Pavlos Rufos, um, members of uh, Angry Workers of the World, uh, different publications from different places, um, People, uh, some comrades in Croatia and in Bulgaria, um, to write pieces from different perspectives, um, because it's interesting. I think that this conflict looks very different, perhaps like from China mm-hmm. uh, or from Germany or from the United States, uh, just given the ge- different geopolitical relation and economic relationship of dependency that these different countries have. China, of course, looking on to this conflict and you know. Are, are we going to back Putin? Is he making this sort of grave mistake? Are we sort of waiting in the wings for the United States and Russia to sort of, you know, wear each other out and then sort of rise as the aspiring new hegemon? Uh, you know, Europe's, you know, facing a really dire um, winter coming up here in terms of energy prices uh, across the board. And America, of course, uh, you know, with its uh, historic rivalry, it's sort of, you know, residual cold war mentality toward russia so um i you know i'm hoping that there are a lot of uh, contributions uh to this issue and if you're listening to this and you have something to say we are looking for stuff from a more traditionally left communist or post-left communist 
perspective, but also sort of class struggle anarchism or even forms of Trotskyism. Like if you, if, you know, if you have interest in the topics that are listed there and, you know, feel like you have something to say, please, you know, don't be shy, reach out to us and, uh, Unless be happy you're janky. To, um, erasure. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I don't anticipate getting too many contributions from that. No, I just got a message from one of our listeners, uh, Jackson Hinkle's his name. And he'd love <laughs> to write a rejoinder to your coming uh yeah, Haas or Caleb, Caleb Maupin's gonna <laughs> Caleb come out he's gonna come out of his uh whatever yeah. Uh, scandal he's embroiled in currently and yeah. uh, maybe make a comeback. Hey, if LaRoucheism can make a comeback, anybody can. All right? yeah. Well, I'm going to give you guys note. a spanking. <laughs> that was the scandal. Andy was referring to the spanking yeah. scandal. But we can take that uh, to beyond the paywall. In fact, if you're listening now and you'd like more of this scintillating content, if you'd like to know why Andy mentioned spanking, along with other things like topics we're going to talk about, like family abolition and other sort of talking of stuff, then, yeah, become a patron at patreon.com slash the Antifada. How does spanking relate to family abolition and Caleb Maupin? We'll, we'll tie it all together. <laughs> here's, a little, here's a little spoiler. The abolition of spanking is a non-reformist reform towards the abolition of the family. So if you had liberal parents who never broke off a switch and hit you, you're halfway home. Sounds like Paul Goodman. Yeah, but you'd be turning Caleb Maupin off. (laughs) 